Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers, both inside and outside of medicine. Recharge and refocus with incredible stories, unique perspectives, and unforgettable conversations. Get ready to see what's working. Get ready to see what's ahead. Get ready to see things differently. Get ready for Peer Spectrum. Now your hosts, Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. When Keith and I first started this podcast, we had a simple goal. We wanted to bring on guests who can help physicians like yourself in very specific areas, wanted to uncover unique people and stories, and share those conversations with you in a format you can take with you and listen to anytime, anywhere. What we didn't anticipate, but we're happy to find, is the impact some of these guests would actually have on us. Today's guest is just such a person. As we find her today in February 2017, Suzanne Watson is a medical student finishing up her final year at Wake Forest University. She's also a mother of four, a former minister, a widow, and she's 54 years old. With a growing family, Suzanne voluntarily left medical school in her 20s, but never gave up on her dream of becoming a physician. That dream never flickered, even through her career as an Episcopalian minister and while raising her four children alone after the tragic death of her husband. We're going to talk with Suzanne about what exactly happened to her husband 15 years ago. We're going to see how that experience impacted her family and how it guides her current mission to become a healer and an advocate for those suffering with mental illness. If I had to pick one word to describe Suzanne, it would be resilience. As you'll see, though, that one word alone isn't enough to describe Suzanne. She's someone with incredible kindness, an inspiring mission, and someone we predict you'll be hearing a lot more from in the future. It was a great episode, and it was a real privilege to speak to her at the beginning of this next journey in her life. With that said, let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin. Today we have Suzanne Watson with us. Uh, Suzanne, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Suzanne, take us back to just almost four years ago. It's a week right before you had a big decision to make, and you got two letters in the mail. What were those letters, and tell us how you felt that day. I did. It was about four years ago, just about this time of year, and I received a letter from Wake Forest that I opened as an attachment to an email. I was actually at the gym walking up the stairs when I opened it, and it was my acceptance to medical school. My daughter was picking me up at the gym, and I walked upstairs and ran to the car and said, look at this. I read it. I think it says that I've been admitted, but I need you to confirm it really says that. <laughs> so she read it and she said, yes, it's an acceptance to Wake Forest. So it, that was really one of the happiest days of my life. I was thrilled. Uh, a little bit later that week, I went to the mailbox and I opened up the mail and there was a uh, one of the cards from AARP, which I was about ready to turn 50. I didn't realize I sent them that early, but they did. So yes, I got my AARP card and my med school acceptance within the same week. Wow. So we're now in January of 2017 mm -hmm. and you're going to graduate in May. So you've almost I made am. the first stage of this. You're, you're about to have MD behind your name. Let's start at the beginning. I mean, what was it like when you were thinking about going back to medical school? Who are you talking to? You know, what kind of encouragement did you get? Did you get any discouragement from anybody? And what was going through your mind as you were preparing for this? Well, what happened was I was working as the head pastor of a congregation in San Diego. I'm an Episcopal priest, 
And I'd seen a lot of people who get to a certain stage of their career and they're just waiting for retirement. They're putting those years in and they're just kind of waiting to do their time and passing time. And life is so precious. I really truly believe that we need to live as fully as we possibly can. And all of my life, I had longed to be a physician, but I thought the ship had really sailed. I had almost went back when I was 40 years old, but I told myself I was way too old. Now I kicked myself because I would have been out of residency by the time I started. <laughs> but I really had thought that it was completely over. What happened is I started to really think about how I wanted to live this next big chunk of my life. We're all living so much older and healthier now. And I really don't plan on ever retiring. So I really wanted to ask myself what I could do with this next segment of my life. About that same time also, I read a New York Times article that was written by David Brooks that interviewed people in their 80s and their 90s about their greatest regrets in life as they look back. And it came out that the one thing that they regretted was not necessarily failing, it was not taking risks. And as silly as it sounds, when I when I read that article, I thought, I really don't want to regret not taking the risk to at least try to go to medical school. If I'm not accepted, fine, but at least I tried this one last time. And when I'm sitting in my rocking chair on the front porch in my cardigan, I can at least say I tried. I can say I tried and failed, but at least I tried. And I did. And it was so, it was so exciting to be admitted. Um, I also did consult with my children and especially my oldest son. Um, he said, I don't mean to be rude about this mom, but you've talked about this your entire life and you really aren't getting any younger. I think you either need to do it now and sign up tomorrow or stop talking about it. Okay. So <laughs> I went forward in that way too. I also did have a very, very good spiritual advisor at the time. I've always had a spiritual advisor in my life, usually a Roman Catholic sister. And she talked to me about some of my desires. And she also talked to me about what it is to be a steward of all the gifts that you're given in this life, even the gifts that are won through hard struggles and enduring difficult times. And she said, if you truly are drawn to this as a calling and it feels like a calling to God, I think you need to be a steward of that gift and you need to try it. And so she actually encouraged me to try as well. So that's all I could do is to try and see if it would work out. And it did. So I'm thrilled. So could you remember um, the first time you decided to go to medical school versus yeah. this time? What, mm -hmm. How did the decision differ? What, what kinds of things went through your mind that were different now? Obviously, um, age was a factor, but what else in terms of your understanding of what medical school would really be and your understanding of what your life would really be? I think that I was a lot more like a traditional candidate when I went the first time. I was expecting to work hard. I'd always wanted to be a physician and I had been on kind of that route my whole life up until that point. Um, and to me, it seemed like a little, just really an ex kind of an extension of college, even though I was already married at that time. And I had a nine month old baby and then I became pregnant the night of white coat actually. But um, it, it, I'm at a much different place now. Uh, I'm not sure I really had a clue of what being a physician would be like or being a medical student would be like at that time. I think coming into it now, I have the knowledge of what it is to lose a family member, what it is to struggle through illnesses. As a ordained minister, I worked 
with hospice and been part of that blessed journey towards death with patients in a ministerial capacity. So going into an ICU or going into an internal ward or the ED, I had a lot more knowledge of some of the more difficult things that you encounter as a physician. I'm coming into it with a much different perspective, I think. We do want to explore some of the, the things that led you to this, because um, there, there is a lot to explore there. This, Besides taking a risk here, there's also a huge commitment of time. Um, just taking the MCATs is not an easy thing in preparing for that, but also the financial burden of taking out student loans. Uh, becoming a medical doctor today is more expensive than ever. What was going through your mind um, when you considered these challenges? Well, there was the family component of it because I do have kids. I'm a widowed mom of four, and I still had one child at home and one child who was just graduating from college and then two in college. So it was a difficult time in in that way. And I needed to take my children into consideration in doing this because it is a very difficult time. Actually, one of my children left school and came home and went to a local community college to help with her brother who was in high school at the same time. And I'm very, very grateful to her to have had her here these last couple of years. She's transferred to a four-year university now um, and he's in college now. So things are actually easier now than they were when I started. Um, so that was a big concern for me. Financially, I was extremely worried about how I could make this work. Um, I spoke with my financial planner about it, and he did an analysis of my lost income by leaving ministry basically during the eight, probably most active years of what would have been my ministerial time. And plus the cost of medicine, like you say, it's very expensive. And he came up with a number that he said that I could go out buy a Ferrari and take a year off of work and drive around the country and still be in a better place financially than if I actually pursued this. But maybe it's the cost of happiness. I'm so happy. I'm glad I did it. When I think about the finances, I'm really very grateful to Wake. When I was after that conversation with him, I actually took the time to fly back to North Carolina from California and to meet with our financial aid folks. And at that time, they informed me that I'd been given an incredibly generous scholarship to Wake. And yes, I'm coming out of it with some loans, but nothing is bad as it could have been, which will then allow me to get a much higher needs setting when I finish than if I was trying to pay off a huge student loan debt. So I will forever be grateful to wait for taking, for being so generous and really giving me this opportunity. That's wonderful. So there's a component uh, to your practice, I, I suppose, serving in a special needs area or setting that's um, mm -hmm. tied in with the scholarship. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, I eventually went to work in a very high need, underserved area of some sort, and that's, you know, I, I plan to do that, and so, and sometimes those places pay less, and so it's, in, it's important that I, it's a financially sustainable situation. Right. Let's go back to the beginning of medical school here. So you're coming in, and obviously, uh, you're, you're, your fellow students are, for the most part, much younger than you and have a whole range of, well, fewer experiences, but different experiences. Tell us about your first meeting with your soon-to-be classmates. <laughs> well, I was actually, that was one of the things that made me the most nervous was how I would be accepted by my classmates, if indeed I would be accepted by them. I knew that they would be a lot younger than me. 
And that concerned me because I knew that I'd be working very closely with them for four years. I wasn't even sure if they'd even talk to me. So there was the first meet and greet of med school and it was to be held at someone's home. And I dressed up with like my little suit jacket and pants and drove over to this house. And when I pulled up, there was a group of young guys playing beer pong in the garage with the garage door open. <laughs> and I drove right by and went to the end of the street and I called my son and I said, I can't do it. And he said, yes, you can. I said, no, I can't. What have I done? I'm going back to the church. He said, no, you've worked way too long for this. You're going to go, you're going to park that car and you're going to go in if only for five minutes. And I said, okay, I will. <laughs> so I did. And when I walked up to that beer pong table, I think one of them actually thought that I was a neighbor there to complain about the noise. <laughs> but I but I went ahead and introduced myself as his new classmate. So they were all very generous. And actually that night I met another one of the moms in my class. There were there are three moms. When we started, there were three three parents in the class and we were all moms. Um, and they were very nice. And actually my classmates have been absolutely phenomenal. Yes, it was a tiny bit awkward at first, but when you're working so closely together towards such a hard goal, you have something in common and the years really do just slip away. Um, first day of class, I took my place on in the front row, right side, like most returning non-traditional students do. <laughs> and there are a lot of other really nice people in that front right row. And some of those uh, people I consider my best friends, even though they're the same age as my children. Well, I'm sure it didn't hurt that you beat them all in beer pong that night either, right? <laughs> I didn't play beer pong. <laughs> okay. Good. Right answer. So. Well, um, Suzanne, we were talking a little bit offline. When, when I was in medical school, there were a number of people who had a lot of um, community experience and experience outside of medicine before coming back to, to, um, to medical school. Um, and to a large extent, we people who came through college would say, um, would ask a lot of questions. What, what What's it really like when you have a family? What's it really like when you're in the real world? Because we had no idea. Um, have you found that that's been the case with your class? Do they look at you as a resource of, of um, a way to, to, um, to talk to patients and to talk to other people? I think that it's maybe been more in terms of keeping things in perspective or maybe being a source of support. Like for instance, when you come when you come to med school and maybe you don't have the ego strength that you develop or the confidence that you develop from an outside career and having lived life and gone, gone through a lot of different challenges, you really know what's important and what's not. You know that if you don't do well or if you don't pass your board exams, that really life isn't going to end. It's an inconvenience. Maybe you don't feel quite as good, but it's not the end of the world. And I think and um, so I think being a source of support to try and keep things in perspective um, is important. I also, from my ministry work, I just am very naturally supportive of others. And so I am there if I like to think that I'm there if somebody's hurting and needs support. Yeah, I'm sure that they found that valuable. Uh, let me turn it around. What have you learned from your younger classmates? Um, I am so impressed by this generation of their openness in terms of their emotions and the things that they think about and worry about. They're also very generous in terms of giving, in terms of social service. And that seems to be a very natural part of their lives. Um, 
And I think when I went through undergrad, it was just a different, it was such a different time. And the role of somebody who was above you in a hierarchy was just always respected because of the authority and the position. And I see much more willingness to engage really both on the part of the administration and faculty on and on behalf of my classmates in, t- in terms of changing structures that maybe need to be changed or being proactive about systemic changes. Whereas previously, like in my prior education, that wasn't part of it. I would never have thought to be proactive about trying to change the system just because it was such a such a hierarchical organization academics can be in educational systems so i really i really admired that and learned from that i think that's great so suzanne you're on the path towards becoming a psychiatrist right right is this has this always been part of the plans is this something that's more recent um take us down pathway there Well, my grandfather was a psychiatrist and he lived next door to us when I was growing up. He, and so even from the time I was five years old, I was able to see him um, going into the office to see patients. The one thing I remember most vividly was that he believed that proper nutrition was part of good psychiatric care. And I think that for a doctor practicing in the thirties through the seventies, that was an amazing thing. So I really admire that looking back on him and his practice. So one story that he told that was funny is he'd actually worked at Bellevue. He'd been a military psychiatrist and then he kind of half retired and was working in um, the Del Mar La Jolla area of San Diego out in Palm Springs. He had these private practices there. And it wasn't until he got there that a La Jolla socialite hit him over the head with an ashtray and he ended up in the hospital with a head injury. <laughs> and he always liked he could work at Bellevue and in a military <laughs> hospital. And it wasn't until he got to La Jolla that he actually ended up injured by a patient. But that that aside, um, I, I just really, I respected the profession at that time. What I think I liked um, also is I used to see him on nice days. There was a porch swing outside his office and I would see him sitting on the swing and talking to people. And I think even as a child, I noticed that intimacy of those relationships and those discussions and was kind of drawn to that. However, when I went to med school the first time, I was not thinking of psychiatry. It was only when I returned and had lost someone to um, suicide that it was, it, it was uh, psychiatry that really drew me in. Suzanne, tell us more about that. Um, so your husband was a neurologist. Uh, both yes. of you met when you were entering medical school or just before that. Is that right? He was just finishing his ship and had joined the faculty at UC San Diego in neurology. And I was just, I was actually, our family owned the apartment building he was living in. And so I actually met him when I was going by to collect his rent. So um <laughs> I was about, I was thinking about medical school at that time, but then things kind of changed. We ended up getting married and going out and starting a private practice together in central California. Um, he had suffered from depression or possibly bipolar disorder. I'm not sure for years. Um, and the treatment that he had received, he, he really didn't seek proper treatment, um, probably for a host of reasons. I think there are a lot of barriers to physicians seeking treatment. And it culminated with a very bad outcome when he 
took his life when Christmas time about 15 years ago. We had four kids under the age of 10 at the time and a large home in Central California. And I was pursuing my pursuing ordination and getting my M, my Masters of Divinity at the time. It's a, a very hard and tragic time. Well, after you lost your husband, um, you were going into the ministry at this point. This had, this pathway had already started. Um, did you reconsider that path at that point? Did going back into medicine into your mind? What was going through your mind at that moment? Obviously, uh, your family was probably first and foremost on your mind. Absolutely. It was just, it was one foot in front of the other. Um, insurance or his big life insurance policy did not pay because of the nature of his death. And so suddenly I found myself in school full time with four kids and the household expenses of a physician with absolutely no way to cover those expenses. I had to graduate, be ordained and get a job immediately just to put food on the table and raise our family and sell the house and everything else. So no, something like thinking about medicine wouldn't have even crossed my mind at that point. I just wanted to survive pay attention to my children's mental health needs in the wake of such grief and tragedy and of my own and help and help to keep us a intact, mentally healthy, physically healthy family. Today, and, and maybe it hasn't changed much, maybe it has, what are your thoughts on mental health and mental health struggles within the medical community? Uh, there does seem to still be a stigma sometimes about talking about this or even seeking treatment. Where do you think we are today, and what do you, what kind of impact do you hope to have in your practice? I really hope to be a voice going forward to encourage people to seek help, to encourage physicians, and really clergy for that matter, to seek help when they struggle with mental health issues, substance abuse, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideations, um, anything. And being a physician is a very demanding career, and I think it's and it can be a career that leads to burnout as well. And yet, because of debt and lifestyle and all so many other reasons, I think physicians can feel trapped in what they're doing. I believe that um, seeking help. I think there used to be more barriers to it. I'm seeing many more physician wellness initiatives on the surface, yet underneath. I'm not sure how much has changed. Um, I was recently on one of my psych interviews. It was a program that requires psychiatry residents to have a year of personal psychotherapy. And one of the residents said that some in their program are to cash for it because they don't want an insurance record that they sought help, even though it's required by the program. Hmm. So there is stigma still and fear I think one of the, I think there are several problems, but I think one of the large barriers to seeking help is that um, it's the problem of having to report to your state medical board if you sought help for mental illness. I think that's probably one of the areas where we can still seek to change it. Right. When physicians are relicensed, you have to answer a question and states vary. But last night I was looking at the California application and there is a question about have you ever, not even how are you currently, have you ever sought help for a psychiatric illness or a mental health illness or substance abuse issue that could limit your ability to practice medicine? And 
I think it's very important that we have healthy physicians and we take good care of our patients and we want to make sure that there is nothing that's standing in the way of taking good care of patients. And yet I think it's a large percentage of physicians that will undergo a depression in their lifetime. I think it's something like even 15% of med students, I think will report a depression and 30% of residents and physicians have higher suicide rates than the general population. Right. And so there's, I think there are a lot of problems still. I think it's a little bit better, but I think it's something that we need to talk about. And it's actually one of the reasons I risk sharing my own story is because I hope that it encourages anybody who is struggling to go ahead and take that risk and get some help. Well, let me ask you, um, in medical school now, and not to necessarily um, put the spotlight on Wake Forest, any medical school, mm-hmm. is it your impression that there are resources for the students to um, to find that might help them through their, their periods of depression, whether it's reactive or, or um, more uh, biological illness? Yes, and I think that um, I have been actually really proud of the efforts that Wake Forest has made. They actually have a launch program where they're including some uh, – wellness initiatives in those first days of medical school, because I think that's the other prong of this is, is addressing healthy coping mechanisms early on and bringing some of these things to light. In med school interviews, or excuse me, in my residency interviews, I've discussed this probably in every interview. And so I have, I have learned a lot of the different initiatives that are being, um, undertaken across the country. And it's actually really exciting. I think a lot of med schools really are getting behind helping students in a variety of ways. And it's an exciting thing to see. I do think that med student suicides are still underreported. I think mm-hmm. resident suicides are underreported because right. I think it occurs. I think there is a study that's actually um, underway right now that will hopefully get a little bit better number on the number of med student suicides. But I think they're underreported, and I think that they do happen. And what an absolutely tragic loss. Suzanne, it's not something I'm as familiar with. Where are these numbers reported right now? I mean, if we look at, you know, higher instances of depression in medical uh, students or, or physicians relative to the rest of the population, where, who's compiling this data right now and who's studying it? Well, you can look at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention actually has the suicide numbers um, of physicians and how they compare with the general population. But there are research studies. I was doing just a literature review of some of this. And I can't I can't give you the exact citation of it, but um, but there there is research, but there needs to be more. Yeah, it seems like a huge opportunity right now. Um, do you think there's a reluctance on the part of some administrations in these uh, programs to doing more research in this area? Or is it uh, more of a personal reluctance or fear of really being outed for um, your own uh, seeking of treatment? I'm really not sure. Um, I I don't sense a reluctance to undertake research. I think that there might be a reluctance to adequately report the number of suicides in training programs because I think that it could be seen that that would reflect poorly on a program. So that's why I think that, that it's underreported. And also, and from an altruistic sense too, to respect the rights of the family and the wishes of the families probably as well. It's a losing to someone to suicide is a stigmatized death. It's a very, very difficult thing. It takes a very long time to come to some 
maybe peace about it or even be able to discuss it. So, so it may even just be to, to respect the rights of the family that have just lost a beloved member. Yeah, that makes sense. A uh, question about um, the uh, the regulation and and the boards. Are you aware of or are you involved with any lobbying to the boards to be more sensitive about the mental health issues with uh, medical providers? I'm not, that it, okay. and, but I would love to be. I would love to be. I mean, my my time in med school has been to learn as much as I possibly can at this age, which is a little bit more challenging sometimes, I think, and also to respect the gifts that I've been given of having four children and raising those kids and still having right. a, a son at home. So that's really been the been the focus of my last four years. But moving forward, that's one of the things that I looked at in training programs was if a training program allowed me the chance to be an advocate for mental health rights and to explore some of this. I would love to be involved in lobbying to change some of the questions on Zoom boards because I think that that directly contributed to my late husband's death. Yeah, because I think that's not something that's unique to medicine. I mean, I, I've read recently that pilots, if they report any mental illness, uh, they could lose their license. The military, obviously, right. it, it can be a career killer yeah. um, by just seeking yeah. treatment. So this is something that affects people all across the country and all around the world. And um, mm -hmm. hopefully we're moving towards a time that uh, people are going to be at least a little more open to talk about it. I hope so. I mean, even on the inpatient ward, I've talked to young people who are who are hospitalized and who have had a dream of being in the military or a dream of being in the Peace Corps even. And they're very concerned that this hospitalization is going to negatively impact what had always been a lifelong dream. And that's very sad because it almost punishes the person who is intact enough to reach out and say, hey, I need some help and right. is willing to ask for help instead of suffering in silence and then doing something very destructive. Right. So it, it, yeah. it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. In a way, in a very real way, punishes the most fragile people, the people who shouldn't have to face that punishment. punishment. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, let's change gears a little bit okay. um, because uh, psychiatry obviously is has different skill set. It's it's more listening. It's more empathy. Obviously, there's the biology and the medical aspect of it. Something I've I was very interested in. Almost went into it instead of orthopedics. Really? Um, hey, there's still time. Yeah, I know. That's right. That's, right. That's what everyone tells. That's right. You're you're a proof of that. Excellent. Um, but my question for you is, um, having served uh, in the ministry, having been a, a minister for quite a while, and then come back to it. Um, the skills that you brought, were they only applicable for um, psychiatry? Or what if you had gotten in and decided you loved orthopedics or you loved um, uh, pediatrics or something? Do you think that those skills and what skills were they would have served you in good, good stead for any branch of medicine? I think that they prob it probably could have, although I had a challenge with staying conscious in the OR, so mm. probably, I'm not sure. Okay, so <laughs> Even maybe a not orthopedics, right? <laughs> couldn't take me to be an orthopedic surgeon. However, um, I think what I approach my ministry with and what I think shines through in my practice of medicine that's the commonality is a deep sense of service. I feel that I'm serving God through serving others, and I may not ever say anything about my faith, but I hope the depth and the caring and the compassion that I bring to patient care is the same thing that I hope I brought to my ministry on a good day. You know, I, I, I think that that's a commonality and I think that that would have come out in any, 
in any of the different specialties. Um, I think psychiatry really is born from the tragedy that I, that I experienced in my own life, plus my early experiences with my grandfather. The other side of this is that I have two children that also um, suffer with bipolar disorder. The difference is, is they sought treatment very, very early. We were very proactive in in getting treatment very early on, and they've they've given me permission to share this aspect of the story. I went without their permission, of course. But seeing how good psychiatric care has changed their lives and has helped them to live full, abundant lives, um, really wanted me to be part of bringing that hope and promise of abundance, which to me is a spirit promise to others. So, um, Suzanne, one of the men- uh, the messages on this podcast is that change is going to happen no matter whether you hide from it or not. And uh, you've had change that you've had control over and change, obviously, you haven't had control over. What message would you give to people who are embarking on careers or actually in medical careers about how to face change? Well, I think that the um, a couple things come to mind. I heard a definition of mental health as adaptability. And I think that's a great definition of good mental health as being adaptable because yes, change does happen. Um, and I don't think that being complacent in a career that somebody is not happy with is a good way forward, even if that's offering a nice financial income or if there's debt i really think that there are ways forward you know we only have one life and we need to use it to the best that we possibly can and do what makes our hearts sing and what makes us happy because we contribute so much more and it feels so incredibly good so i would i would say really take assessment if you are happy in what you're doing are you fulfilled or could you be doing more and if you couldn't then start to make those small steps towards going towards something else and um at this point would you recommend people follow in your footsteps i mean obviously not everything in your life but would you say uh, um reach for something and then reach for something else. I mean, this is an unusual course, but it, it's a doable course. It, it's unusual and it is doable. I mean, I, I wish the, one of my regrets is that I wish that I had more years left to do everything that I would like to do within medicine. Right. And it, I just quite frankly don't, but I'm going to do as much as I possibly can. Right. So yes, I, I would say go go for it and do what you really truly want to do. I, I also think it is important to get affirmation from those around us, whether it's a religious leader, family member, to whoever, to continue to check things out and make sure we are going forward on on a path and that people can see some of the validity. And there are always people who will tell you not to, but um, but it's a good way forward. Let's take a look uh, towards the future here, Suzanne. How do you envision your future practice? Um, maybe not specifically where or, or group setting, just yeah. what, what your goals are and dreams for this next uh, 20 plus years. Well, well, you're kind with your, your, your time estimate. I hope that I do have that. That would just be an incredible blessing. But I, when I was in my ministry, I was nominated for Bishop of Alaska. And wow. I, didn't, I didn't end up winning, but I campaigned and ran for Bishop of 
the Episcopal Church for the Alaska. And I really, truly fell in love with the people up there. And if I could dream of a future, it would be of a future of practicing psychiatry in combination with my ministry, because there's a huge clergy shortage there, as well as a physician shortage. And I can't imagine quite what that would look like, but some of the most lovely people on this planet that I've ever met live up above in those villages above the Arctic Circle. And I can't imagine the gift of being able to serve that those communities in that dual role. That would be a dream. Um, I've always frustrated every deployment officer in the church that I've worked with when we've looked at career goals because I kind of sometimes feel like we limit God when we say this is what I'm going to be doing. I never could have mapped out my path in life. I've instead just kind of sprinkled some seed and nourished it and then seen what grew and went in that direction. So I'm very, very open to whatever future doors open up and I really have great faith that God's going to open the right door and I'll happily serve in that capacity, whatever that is. And the advocacy, Pete's, um, you talked a little yeah. about that earlier. Um, how do you see that playing out or what kind of role could you serve there? I would love to be an advocate politically and with medical boards. I hope I will be able to do that probably through the American Psychiatric Association or other. The other piece that I would love to be involved in is maybe using my ministry to speak about mental health in some places like I'm licensed in the church in the West Indies, for instance, I would love to wow. be able to maybe go in and preach in a congregation on a Sunday in the church, but then have maybe some sort of community talk about depression or anxiety and the legitimacy of mental health in some places in the world where maybe it doesn't have the credibility that it does here or the acceptance is a real disorder. Let me, let me uh, take it in a different direction, okay. which you may not have, have thought about and this because you're medical school, you may not have run into it. Um, it, it just about every hospital has the quandary of the ethics committee mm -hmm. and the people who are on the ethics committee are, um, sort of self-chosen. Sometimes they're surgeons, sometimes they're yeah. psychiatrists, whatever. Right. Um, and they always have the chaplain on it as well. Yeah. Um, is that something that has caught your interest? Because you would be having both the, the uh, ministerial experience and yeah. the medical experience now, you would be ideal for an ethics type committee or an ethics type position. I would love that. We had somebody from the ethics committee come and talk to us, I think, second year um, and tell us about the ethics committee at Wake and what they do. And I was so interested in it. And I told him I'd be interested, but I don't think that there's a spot for a student on something like that. But yes, I think I would be an absolute natural for something like that. Right. I would really enjoy that. Yeah, I served on two ethics committees at two different hospitals and wow. I found it absolutely fascinating and yeah. something that I really wanted to be more involved because we don't... Um, we have to admit we don't teach ethics very well in medical school. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have time, perhaps, or we don't have the framework. Uh, but maybe something you could work with at the medical school level to figure out ways to teach it on mm -hmm. a functional basis. Yeah. Just, just thinking. Wouldn't that be cool? That'd be yeah. great. Yeah. See, lots of, lots of doors. We'll see which one opens in the long That's run. Right. <laughs> That's right. You got a busy time coming up. You're about to go into residency. Um, I am. Yeah. One component of this is going to be some research, obviously. Um, I don't know how that plays into your long-term goals, but are there any very specific areas that 
you're curious about right now that you'd like to explore more? I am. I've done, I've already written a proposal for a medical to do a survey of the different suicide prevention programs that are being taught in medical schools or used in medical schools. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough research really to be a good review of literature. So that's something that I, I hope to do something in med student suicide prevention and wellness in, um, in my residency. I'm also very interested in quality improvement projects. I just completed a month of one at Wake Forest and I'd love to do some quality improvement in terms of, um, in, in the field of psychiatry in some way. Great. And just to wrap things up here, maybe you can share with our viewers just maybe some links, some organizations, resources that you'd like to share. And we'll put some of these in the show notes, of course, but not only things that you're interested in, but also maybe resources that could help people who are also struggling with mental health um, issues or depression and where they could go to help. Sure. I think the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is a great place to start. They have a lot of resources on their webpage. I also think, um, I think NAMI is another national um, organization for mental illness that has a lot of support groups. For substance abuse, of course, AA and other organizations um, are good. Every community has a suicide hotline that you can call at any time. And of course, if somebody's in in a situation where they're like they could harm themselves or others, any emergency department is the place to go. But reach out. Nobody has to suffer in silence. And there is the promise of abundant life. And with help, you can get to that point in your life, despite how dark it seems. You can get through that darkness and the light is there. Well, Suzanne, thank you again for coming on and sharing with us and, and opening up for our viewers and for us. I mean, it really means a lot to us. And Keith and I really enjoyed talking with you today. And we have you back on. Maybe once you get into residency, maybe we can catch up with you and see how things are going. <laughs> I'll look a lot less uh, well-rested at that point, I think. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. It's true. We'll have to catch you uh, someday That's that right. uh, you actually have a little downtime, which may not be much. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about something that's so important to my heart. And thank you. You're very welcome. And thank you. All right, everybody. Well, this is Colin Miller here with Keith Mankin on Pure Spectrum, wherever, whenever you're listening to us. Hope you're having a great afternoon. We'll see you here next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us on Pure Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at purespectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.